Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Uh, There's some behavior that we would, we would, um, we're okay with for adults, I'm sorry, for children, that we would be appalled by in, in adults. There are some things that it's acceptable for a child to do that we're appalled if an adult or a teenager does the same thing. For instance, you have a one or a two-year-old, and you put some vegetable in front of them, and they don't like it, or you put some food in front of them, and they don't like it. What is that child, if they know how to talk, they, you, they're, they're going to taste it, and, say, Ew, and they're going to spit it out on their, on their plate, or they're going to take the little plate, and they're going to push it off their high chair, or somebody tries to feed them, and they're going to slap it away. And, and we might train and teach the right way, but at that age, we, we understand they're not emotionally developed well enough. They, they don't understand how to communicate well enough, to express themselves well enough. If there's something that they don't quite like, a flavor that doesn't quite fit their palate, we understand what might be a rude response in an adult. What if an adult were to do that? You invite somebody over to your home and you put something on their plate. And, and they don't like zucchini, and you put zucchini right there, and they take and they slap the host's hand, and they take the plate and throw it off. We're never inviting that family back over, are we? Well, now, we understand there might be some things that aren't my favorite, that I don't like the taste of, that I don't enjoy the flavor of, but I'm going to have a little more respect, I'm going to have a little more grace, I'm going to have a little more understanding. A mature person is going to be able to appreciate different flavors a little better than a child, is going to have enough maturity and respect to not criticize or mock or, or the cook who made something that wasn't their favorite flavor. They're not going to, no, don't ever, no, I, I hate that. We're not going to say that. Why? We, we've grown in some of our, our ability to handle different flavors and some of our maturity. What about when it comes to possessions? We understand a little bit when a toddler, the, the one or two-year-olds that are in the nursery right now, and they go and grab a toy, and another kid asks them, can I play with that toy? And by nature, what are some of them might be very kind-hearted, like when my kids were in the nursery, very generous and very giving. Others of them, like your kids, they might be a little more selfish, right? And, and what do they do by nature? What do they, they hide it. No, they, they, then the other one will come and, oh, you're not going to give it to me? What, they push them down, and then they punch them, and then they, it's an all-out WrestleMania going on in the nursery. And it's a little, a little, we understand that they're still learning what it is. They don't quite understand sharing. They don't quite understand living for others. They don't quite understand the joy of giving. For a child, their entire life revolves around their needs and their wants and their selfish pleasures and tastes being fulfilled. When they refuse that, they, they, they're selfish by nature. Now, it doesn't mean it's right for them to be selfish or unkind, but we understand. But an older child or teenager should be growing in their ability to live to make others happy, not just themselves. And if they don't, when an older teenager in our homes reverts back in their maturity and they're not quite using the tools and the manners and the selflessness that we've tried to instill in them, what do we say to them, those of us that are parents? You need to grow up. Grow up. <laughs> Thank you. How old are you? Like, you're not, I, I think I said this to one of our older kids this week while we were home enjoying harmonious family time for two or three days of Thanksgiving break. You're not four years old anymore. Stop doing that. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Grow up. Why? Because there's some things that are acceptable when we're immature when we're young, when we're just learning that should no longer be a part of the way we treat one another as we mature. They should be no longer part of how we interact with one another as we get mature. And the Bible, the Bible tells us in the Bible, it likens our spiritual growth to our physical growth. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus? He said, he said, Nicodemus, you must be what? You must be born, born what? Born again. And Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? 
How am I going to be born when I'm old and go back to my mother's womb? That's not possible. But he, Jesus was using an analogy, a, an analogy of the physical birth to the spiritual birth. There needs to be a time and a place in your life when you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And if you're here this evening or you're watching online or later on on, on a podcast archive and there's never been a time and place that you've been born again, get that settled. Place your faith and trust in Christ alone as Savior. And just like all of us have a physical birthday, if we want to... to to live in this earth, if we want to live forever in heaven, we need a spiritual birthday. He likened the, the, the new birth, the spiritual birth, to our physical birth. And then throughout Scripture, and in the place we're going to be tonight is one of these passages, it likens our spiritual growth to our physical growth. It says when we're first born into Christ, it calls us newborn babes in Christ, just like a little baby that can't do anything for themselves, that can't understand and comprehend and compute. It's all new. They just take a few sips of milk and grow little by little. The same is true spiritually, but we're to grow in grace. This evening, I want to bring you a message by that title of what we maybe have said to our children from time to time, we need to grow up. Now, it sounds, and what I'm going to preach, it's going to kind of sound like I'm chastising our church family. The pastor must be preaching because we have a church family filled with a bunch of spiritually immature believers. That's not where my heart is on this at all. But all of us from time to time, just like there are times where my teenagers revert back and act like three or four or five-year-olds sometimes in some of their manners or, or their reactions or their responses, and they're selfish. And just like their dad, who's not in his teen years and is now in his 40s, sometimes reverts back and is really selfish, and, and just like that can happen to us in our lives, the same thing can happen in our spiritual lives. We need to grow up, and I want, to, I want you to see what we're talking about. We're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth there in Greece. Corinth, the second largest city in Greece at that time. Corinth, the church at Corinth, Paul had led many of these people to Christ. Paul had helped establish this church. But he's writing, there are two letters, and they're two of Paul's longest letters, actually, by the way. First um, and Second Corinthians, the two of the longest letters that Paul writes are to this church. And First Corinthians is not a letter of praise. Yeah, Philippians is a letter of praise. It's a letter of gratitude. First Corinthians, by and large, is a letter of correction. You see, the church at Corinth, Corinth was a wicked city, it was a seaport town that had all kinds of wickedness, and the church at Corinth was a very carnal, fleshly church. They were a church that, like a newborn baby or like a toddler, they cared more about their wants and their needs and their selfish pleasures. They cared more about what made them happy than what made God happy. They wanted their flesh to be pleased, and, and the church at Corinth, part of the big piece of Paul writing to them was to correct many of the things. They were a church that lived for what pleased them. They were divided. There was discord in their church. They were immature. They were handling the Lord's Supper wrong. They lived for—there was immorality. They lived for what made them happy. And Paul told them without—Paul didn't mince words. Paul didn't—throughout many of his letters, he, he said some really strong things. Paul told them they needed to grow up. Many in this church—by the way, these were all not new believers. Many in this church had been saved for nearly a decade. This church, when this letter was written, was about a decade old. They had been—and had, the, the person who had led them to Christ was the Apostle Paul. You would think, well, I understand why so-and-so maybe isn't, isn't, they haven't really been in, in a good church, or they haven't really had anybody teach them how to be spiritually mature. The Apostle Paul was the one that led them to Christ. He was their church planter. He was their, their missionary evangelist that planted their church. They had learned from one of the mightiest Christians to ever walk the face of the earth, and yet they still struggled with spiritual immaturity. And so Paul tells them they needed to grow up. The church is almost a decade old when they were, when they had received this letter. And we're going to look through this chapter, chapter 3, and then we're going to look at two other passages in the same letter, two other little portions of Scripture tonight. But I want you to see Paul, number one, he makes the pronouncement. Would you read chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 aloud with me? If, you're, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to get one in the pew rack in front of you if you're following along on an app or a tablet. I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible, and we'll look at this together. Chapter 3, let's read verses 1 and 2 aloud together. Ready? Begin. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal 
even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Wow. It's a pretty strong, a pretty strong proclamation from the Apostle Paul. He said, I wish I could talk to you in, in, in spiritually mature ways, but you're not ready to receive it. Have you, again, with our children, have you ever been there? I just have to keep it really low. They don't quite understand. I've got to just keep it really basic concepts. Why? Because their brain has not, fun, has not formed yet to understand the complex concepts. That's what he's saying here. He said, I can't speak unto you as, as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal carnal, worldly, or fleshly, not close to God, but living for self, living for the flesh. He said, I can't talk to you about spiritual things. He said, you're you're carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. You're brand new little newborn babes. You can't, just like a newborn baby, the only thing they can eat is milk. You can't eat any fruit or vegetables or meat. You can't eat any of that in the Bible and other places like in Scripture to the milk of the Word, the meat of the Word that we grow by. He said, you're not ready for any of that. You're spiritually immature. What is he saying? You need to grow up, church at Corinth. And here's what he said, when I was there, I fed you with milk because you were babies in Christ. And still, I can only feed you with milk. You haven't grown. He said, even now, you're still the same right now. The proclamation, he's saying here, you need to grow up. And may I stop? He's telling them they're like newborn babies in Christ. And may I stop and say this? It's okay as Christians to start as a newborn babe in Christ. It's not okay to stay there. We're supposed to grow in grace. We're supposed to grow in our Christ-likeness. We're supposed to become more Spirit-filled. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. We're supposed to grow in the grace of giving and in the grace of loving and in forgiveness and in compassion and in kindness. We're supposed to grow, but how, how many of us, we've been saved for weeks or months or years or maybe decades, and we have stunted growth. It's been forever since we really grew in our relationship with God. He says here, when I was with you, I could only give you milk, and even still, I can only give you milk. You're you're immature. It's okay to start as a baby. It's not okay to stay there. He's telling them, I'm not sure if it's the church at Corinth or the preschool at Corinth. Let me stop and ask us, are you growing in Christ? Spiritually, are you more like Him today than you were a year ago or two years ago? or five years ago, or 10 years ago. When a baby is born, a little baby, we don't expect them when they, the first time they bring them to church or the first time you see them, oh, well, what's wrong with your child? Why isn't he or she rolling over or crawling or walking or running or riding a bike? Nobody asks those questions. And no parent is worried on, on they're three weeks old, honey, we better call the doctor, what's wrong? Our, our little lavender isn't riding a bike yet, what's the matter? Nobody's worried about that at that age. He can't walk, he can't talk, she can't, she can't read, she can't speak. But after the child is supposed to be making some natural progressions in their growth, you get to a year or two and the child's not walking, or the child's not speaking, is not verbal, or there's, you get to a year, maybe there's somewhere months along and there's, there's, the hearing doesn't seem right, or what happens when the natural progression doesn't take place, what do we immediately do? We need to reach out and figure out is there something we're missing? Is there something stunted in the development of our child? My, my brother has Down syndrome, and my mom did not know it when she was giving birth, did not, was not aware that he would have that. And I remember right after he was born, they, they knew that they did, had no idea that there was, and, and I wasn't gonna say anything wrong, there's nothing wrong, he's, a, he's created exactly as God wants, but they, they didn't know there would be any special needs to deal with uh, when she was expecting. And, and the baby came and, and just, oh, it's a newborn. And, and within a few hours, the doctor said, we've got some issues that you need to be aware of. This is going to affect his growth. And this is going to affect really the rest of your lives. And, and by the way, it's affected it unbelievably positively. It's, it's not all negative, but it's going to be different than what you were expecting, his growth and his development. And we, we, we have no problem if there's a newborn baby that's not growing, but the, the struggle is by age two or three or four or five, there's certain milestones we're supposed to be hitting. And your Christian life is not my Christian life, but God's plan is we're supposed to be growing. 
We're supposed to be falling more in love with Him and living more like Him, not less. We're supposed to be sharing more of the love of Christ in and through our lives, not less. We're supposed to forgive more like Christ, and it seems like sometimes believers, the longer they've been saved, they get a little more cantankerous and a little more angry and a little more immature and a little more divisive and a little, if we're not careful, we become bitter, but we're we're faithful to church, but we become bitter, angry, grumpy people. God, God wants us to finish our course with joy and with spiritual maturity. So let me ask you, are you growing in Christ? Are you more kind and godly and holy? Do you have deeper spiritual passions or have you grown complacent? Are you portraying the fruits of the Spirit or the works of the flesh in and through your life? Really ponder and answer that question. Some Christians, I believe, it's kind of like, man, I'm so thankful God saved me from a life of dishonesty and sinfulness and immorality and unrighteousness. I'm a completely different person now. I go to church every week, and my life now is characterized by pride and gossip and backbiting and discord and self-righteousness. God didn't save us from one set of sins to another set. No, we should be growing in our Christ-likeness. Let it not be so, Christian. We need to grow up. So we see the proclamation. They, They were spiritually immature. But what were the problems? What were the characteristics that illustrated their immaturity? I want you to see the proof of their immaturity. Look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse number 3. Would you read verse number 3 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? What was the proof of their spiritual immaturity? The proof was envying. They were comparing one another. What's that person doing? What do they have that I don't have? It was was envying, strife, fighting, backbiting, discord, gossip, divisions. Paul says here, he says, he says the proclamation, you're, you're little babies that can't handle anything. You haven't grown in Christ. And the proof of that is your spirit. It's not a spirit of unity in Christ. It's a spirit of envying, of strife, of discord. This is interesting to me. Because if you were to walk up to me, maybe a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, and say, what was the big thing Paul was dealing with with the church at Corinth? What was the big sin of the church at Corinth? I would have told you sexual immorality. And it was. It is. We're, you, can, you can see it. In fact, we're going to look at it in chapter 5. Just look over at chapter 5 real fast. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse number 1. Chapter 5, verse number 1, he says, and Paul addresses this, it is reported, what's that next word, church? It is reported what? It is reported what? Commonly that there is fornication, that is physical relationships outside of marriage. There is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. You guys are involved in stuff that the world's not even involved in. You, you, guys are, you guys are debauched in your church. You're doing things that those that don't know Christ aren't even doing. They're not even named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. There was this gross immorality. Then in verse number two, and you are puffed up. There's pride. And have not rather mourned. You, there, there's no shame over your sin. That he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. You're still fellowshipping and, and supporting and encouraging. And you know there are people in your church living in open, unrepentant immorality. That's a part of the church at Corinth's story. But when Paul said, you're immature believers, he didn't point to that as the main proof of their immaturity. You know what he pointed to? Their strife, their envying, their division. Oh, we like preaching about gross immorality that's not a part of our lives, don't we? Oh, those, those Las Vegas and San Francisco and the big cities and this and that and, and all of these the drag shows and pastor preach on it, and at times I do, and it is immoral, and it's a, a stench in the nostrils of God. We don't mind preaching about that, but what about strife and envying? and divisions. What about that text message you sent talking badly about another believer this week? What about that person you caught after church to share what you didn't like about what happened today? What about that Facebook post, that subtweet? What about that direct message? What about that tearing down of that other brother or sister in Christ? Oh, we don't like that, do we? Because that's, that's just a little sin, but Paul, he said, you guys are spiritually immature, and what's the proof of it? 
You're yet carnal, and the proof of that is not your immorality. The proof is among you is envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? We we sometimes glory in our self-righteousness, in our separation, in sowing discord among brethren within the church, and we we use the term, I have a ministry of discernment. I, I discern what's wrong, and God's given me that ministry of discernment. No, most of the time the ministry of discernment is nothing more than a ministry of discord. I'm not saying we ought not be discerning believers, but most of the time those that have the great gift of discernment are causing more harm to the body than help. Sowing discord among brethren within the church. By the way, may I just stop and say, God's Word still says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue. He goes on, hands that shed innocent blood, and then he says this, he that soweth discord among brethren. That's number seven. That's the one that says it's an abomination. He hates the first six. The seven is an abomination. He that sows discord among brethren. Go ahead and go do a study. Uh, do a study through your, through your Bible and find out what were the times and places where, where um, church discipline, meaning that the pastor stood up and announced we have to separate fellowship, we have to break fellowship with a member of our church. Most of the time when that happened in the New Testament, it was over discord and division. God takes unity in His body very, very seriously. He wants no schisms in the body. We, we glory in our, in our discord maybe within the church or maybe in other churches, and we point out what's wrong with them and what's right with us, and we get lifted up in pride, in comparison, in condescension, in conflict. Paul said these are indications that you are spiritually immature. The proof that they were spiritually mature was strife and division with other good brothers and sisters in Christ. Because those brothers did things a little differently or they liked one a little more than the other, what did it lead to in their lives? And I want you to see it. He continues on here. In In verse number four, I want you to see the proof of their immaturity was their envying, their strife, their division. What was the product of their immaturity? Look at chapter three, verse number four. For for while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? He said, why are you dividing for no reason? You're dividing over personality and not principle. I am of Paul. Well, Paul led me to Christ. Well, Apollos led me to Christ. Paul says, who cares? We're all servants of Jesus Christ. Why are you fighting over personalities and over preferences? I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. What does he say here? He says, are you not carnal? What was the product of their spiritual immaturity, their envying, their, their, their division? What was the product? Number one, the product was a misplaced focus. Look at verse number five, please. Verse number five says, who then, here's Paul writing, by the way. Paul's the one writing this. He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I, Paul, have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He said, why are you focused on the farmers? Why aren't you focused on the one that gives the increase? He said, your spiritual immaturity has led you to a misplaced focus. Who led you to Christ, and, and what Bible college did you go to, and, and what, what, what do you guys do here, and what about that church? They do something differently than we do it. We need to go on a rampage. I'm not talking about ecumenicism. I'm not talking about doctrinal compromise. I'm talking about ungodly division and discord that was going on 2,000 years ago amongst good, godly believers because they had misplaced their focus. They, they, they were part of two different factions. Both Apollos and Paul were believers, ministers of God that God used to reach different people, and they were fighting, our group's better, our tribe's better, our family's better, we, we, our church is better. And he said, who is Paul? Who's Apollos? They're just ministers. They're just farmers. One plants, one waters. Neither of them made the grass grow. Neither of them made the fruit come up. God did that. It was God that gave the— He said, why are you not focused? Why are you not focused on God? You are focused on man, not on God. Spiritually, immaturity, the the product of that in our lives, when there's envying and division and discord, we start getting focused on man, and and, and we start tearing other—as pastors, we can do this. We start tearing down other good, godly men because they do things a little differently than we do, and maybe they're in the South, and they play bluegrass music, and we don't play bluegrass music here, and and they're they're in somewhere else, and they're— choir wears robes, and we don't wear robes, or they don't have a choir, and we have a choir. And we find all these reasons to divide over people. And he says, are you not yet carnal? Who is Paul and who's Apollos? But ministers, it's God that gives the increase. Well, Paul's my favorite. No, Apollos is better. 
Who do you have preached at your church, and who are your, your favorite pastor friends? These are all marks of spiritual immaturity, and they lead to some really unhealthy places in our Christian lives when our focus gets off of God and His Word and onto our sinful pleasures and our desires and our spiritually immature wants and needs, and we start dividing over things that we ought not be dividing on. In my seven years here, God's given us a wonderful spirit of unity in the church. But there have been a few occasions where I've had meetings with good, wonderful believers. The first one was within the first two or three weeks here. And they've brought things to me, and and maybe issues they were having with another Christian in the church, or issues they were having with something that was happening in the church, or in the school, or whatever it might be. And there's no problem with that. That's the biblical pattern, is if somebody's offended you, go to that brother and talk about that directly, and, and, and they'll share what they're struggling with. And I'll say, and I'll, I'll, I, as, as we're talking, I'll say things, and I'll, and I'll ask them, why is that a problem for you? Why are you struggling with that? And they'll say, well, so-and-so taught me, and that's okay. Or, or my pastor growing up always said, and that's not a problem. I'm thankful. I hope that people that I'm their pastor, that I'm teaching them things that they'll carry with them for a lifetime. Or this staff member or this guest speaker said this, and then I'll say, okay, well, Here's the biblical principles for the issue that we're, you're dealing with. Yeah, but what about what my pastor said? And I'll say, I don't know your pastor, and I'm not upset with your pastor, but if your pastor preached the, the traditions of men for the commandments of God, he was probably a good man, but just like I mess up, like I did this morning on my message, sometimes the pastor doesn't preach always that well. And your pastor might have been sincerely a sincere man that here's the biblical principles. But, but, but my Bible college taught me this, but this man taught me that, but that church member said this, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, but what does God's Word say? What does God's Word teach? A misplaced focus. Well, here's the biblical pattern, and, and often when they're struggling with another believer, I'll ask them, so have you gone to talk directly with that believer? Well, no, I was talking to so-and-so. Well, the Bible says here's how you should handle that. And spiritually mature believers handle it in that way. We need to grow up. I'm on Team Paul. I'm on team Apollos. No, we're all on team Jesus. Spiritual immaturity leads us to focus on personalities over principles. It focuses on self rather than the Savior. It's driven by feelings, not facts. We get offended and leave because we don't feel right or somebody made us feel badly instead of dealing with those things. On many occasions in counseling with people, they've shared things they're struggling with, and I'll I'll stop them and I'll say, listen to your last 10 sentences you started with, I feel. And I think feelings and thoughts are, and emotions are terrible guides in these situations. What does the Bible say? What's the truth? Not, not my subjective feelings and emotions. Well, I feel like Paul is better, and I feel like Apollos is better. No, it's, it, spiritual maturity is controlled by emotions, not the Spirit of God. I'm going to build my name and my kingdom, and so to build my kingdom, I've got to tear down that other pastor here in Orange County, and to build up my kingdom, I've got to tear down that other church here in California. I've got to show you why they're wrong and we're right. If my goal is to build up my kingdom, but if my goal is to say, we're just farmers here planting and watering for, for, the, for the great farmer, if you will, I don't mean that disrespectfully irreverently, but for the one that gives the increase, if that's who we are, then I rejoice over that farm. And if they're bearing fruit over there, God can deal with that. Praise God for it. We need to grow up. That spirit of contention, that spirit of comparison, that spirit of condescension. We're like Christian gang members and we're throwing up gang signs. I'm of, I'm of Apollos. I don't know how you would do an Apollos. I guess it's the YMCA. It would be like this, right? Like this song. I'm of Paul. Who cares? He said, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? It's God that gives the increase. Not only does it lead us to a misplaced focus, but spiritual maturity leads us to a misunderstanding of what really matters. Look at verse number seven. Notice what he says. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth. Whoa, we're nothing. (laughs) But God that giveth the increase. Who does what and how they do it and what results they get? He said, don't really matter. God's in control of it all. What matters is, is God at work? 
Again, this doesn't mean that there are never things that believers do that are against Scripture. We're going to we deal with that. It doesn't mean we don't fight for doctrinal purity. It doesn't mean we don't stay true to Scripture. It doesn't mean that we don't separate even from people that claim the name of Christ if they're preaching another gospel. It doesn't mean that there is no place for ecclesiastical separation. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand me. Pastor Ryan is calling for some worldwide compromise of anybody that says they believe in a higher power. No, God made it very clear there is one, one Savior, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. There are some doctrinal lines. Doctrine does divide, but very often it's not doctrine that divides us. It's feelings, and it's emotions, and it's thoughts, and it's personalities, and that's what was dividing them here. I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. It was personalities, and it was differences of opinion, and it was differences in the way one planted and one watered. And he said, why are you focusing on who plants and who waters? Focus on God that gives the increase. Understand what really matters. Well, so-and-so plants differently than you. I would water differently than you. Who cares? Is God working in and through those godly leaders? Then rejoice. That's what matters. It's God's work, not ours. Number three, it also leads to unnecessary separation. Look at verse number eight. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are what, church? Are what? But what are they saying? We're two. I'm Paul. I'm team Paul. I'm team Apollos. And Paul said, he that planteth, now he just told us who it is that plants, it's Paul, and who it is that waters, it's Apollos. He that planteth and he that watereth are one. There is no need for separation there. I don't need to divide with that good brother because he's, he's worked in your life uh, and he's invested in your life a little more than I have. I rejoice over that. This isn't a high school dating relationship. Check the box. Do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. No, we're all on the same team. And I'm not fighting over personality. I'm not fighting unnecessary separation. He said, he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. What does he say? Keep your own backyard clean. Focus on what God's called you to do. It's not your job to fix that church. It's not your job to fix that group of believers. It's not your job. It's your job to plant and water, let God give the increase, and rejoice when and where He does. I, this isn't my—these aren't my words. Some of you are kind of staring at me like, what, what's Pastor Ron? This is the Bible. That's what Paul told the carnal, immature, fleshly church at Corinth. Don't separate unnecessarily. Spiritual, spiritually immature people will separate with other godly believers for superficial reasons. Yes, there's a time to divide from people, even other believers. That time is when core Bible doctrine has been compromised, not when personalities or preferences differ. Here's the ironic thing, and don't miss this. Here's the ironic thing with the Christians at Corinth. They had no problem fellowshipping with fornicators. They had no problem fellowshipping with fornicators, but they had a problem with somebody who went to a church with a different name, Apollos Baptist Church, instead of Paul Baptist Church. They, had no, they, they, they were willing to separate from someone that had been, been taught a little differently, and when I say differently, I just mean different personality, different flavor, taught a little differently than them. But they had no problem fellowshipping with somebody that was having a physical relationship with his mother-in-law. Isn't that ironic? We take a strong stand, and, and I've seen this happen in my 22 years of ministry. We'll sometimes take this strong stand against this thing we don't like in, in a church or in another believer's life. We'll take a strong stand while in our home there is rampant sin, and in our hearts there is rampant sin, and in our lives there is rampant unchecked sin. But we're going to take this strong stand and be careful. Spiritual immaturity will lead you to unnecessarily separate from good, godly believers. They badmouth those, maybe if it were around today, they would have been badmouthing good Christians on social media. They would have been preaching about that church down the road, but they were still fellowshipping. They stopped fellowshipping with them, but they were still fellowshipping with those. Look at chapter 5, verse number 9. Look what he says. He said, Paul had to remind them in chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle 
I already wrote you a letter not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. I'm going to summarize this here for you. This is powerful. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are also without? Do not you judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He says here, he says, don't worry. I'm not talking about don't, don't have interactions and try to share the love of Christ with fornicators and sinners that are outside of the church. Don't separate from them. Now, he's not saying, you know, go to the nightclub with them and get involved in their sin, but he's saying, he's not telling them you can't, you can't try to share the love of Christ with them. I'm not telling you that. He's saying people outside that don't know any better, that need Christ, you need to try to be an influence and a, and a witness to them. But he said, I already wrote you a letter. Those that are within the church that are living in open, unrepentant sin, those, you should have, don't even eat with them. Have no, you say, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. No, that is where separation comes because we say we're not, and, and he says, you don't do this punitively. You do this to restore them, to let them know we love you, but we cannot allow this sin into the body. And so until you get this area right in your life, we cannot, and when you do, we're going to welcome you back. You either spiritual, restore such an one. But Paul says here, I told you, I wrote you a letter not to, to separate with those people, but you're separating with people that are living for God because... They have a little different personality than you, a little different flavor, a little different background. You're separating with those that were led to Christ by Apollos, but you're not separating with the ungodly, wicked members in your church living an unrepentant, ungodly lifestyle. What's wrong with you? So I challenge you this evening, take inventory of your separation. You fight over personality and preference, and you accept fornicators and the ungodly within the midst. In 20 plus years of pastoral ministry work, I've watched pastors separate with other pastors because that pastor does something a little differently in their service. Don't don't dress exactly like them or their wife doesn't dress exactly like their wife or they don't wear exactly what they wear or their pulpit doesn't look exactly like their pulpit or they maybe sing a song that that church doesn't sing. And I've watched pastors have no fellowship have no fellowship, won't, won't, won't walk across the street to say hello to another godly person because they do some things differently. And I've watched some of those same pastors knowingly go to preach for another pastor that they know has covered immorality and ungodliness in their own life or in their church. These things ought not be. And I know that's not in our church, and maybe this isn't for if I ever get invited to a pastor's conference to preach it, this isn't affecting you. But th- that, that can be the spirit of pastors sometimes. We separate over good, with good, godly people while inviting those that have open and unrepentant sin in their lives or things that they've covered, immorality that's been there, and they still fellowship there with no, no restoration, with no repentance. We need to grow up. Lastly, I want you to see the prescription. Paul gives them the prescription to their spiritual immaturity. So we see the proclamation, you're a bunch of little babies, you need to grow up. The proof of that is you're always fighting with each other. You, you don't have a spirit of unity. You're always finding what's, what's different about somebody else and making it a big deal. The product of that is you have a misplaced focus, you have a misunderstanding of what really matters, and you have unnecessary separation. So how do we fix it? What's the prescription? How did Paul tell them to fix it? What was his prescription to grow into spiritual maturity? Please pay attention. For, give me a, maybe 10 more minutes and we'll be done. I want you to see verse number nine. Verse number nine, how did Paul tell them to fix it? Chapter three, verse nine. Would you read verse 9 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. I was going to read all the way to verse 23, the rest of the chapter. For the sake of time, I won't. You can go back and read it. It just builds more on this thought. But here's what Paul said the prescription is to your spiritual immaturity. Number one, realize we are co-laborers, not competitors. We are co-laborers, not competitors. We are laborers together with God. We're God's work. We're God's husbandry. That's the farming. We're God's building. 
According to the grace of God, verse 10, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. This is not Dwight Tomlinson's church, and this is not Ryan Thompson's church, and this is not Jerry Bunch's church who founded this church. Those were, those were ministers that God used to build the church and to lead the church and to preach to the church and to invest in the church. And this is not now my church. I'm an interim pastor. Every pastor is an interim pastor unless he plans on the church dying when he leaves. This, what am I doing? What are we doing? Is that we are building upon a foundation that another group of people laid for us. And this is not our work, it's His work. This is not my name, it's His name. I don't preach for, hopefully, for my glory, but for His glory. We are co laborers, not competitors. God is the superintendent, and we are all contractors working for Him and with each other to build His building. We have a few construction superintendents. Aubrey, who sang the solo tonight, her dad is a construction superintendent. Javen retired as a construction, several others of you. Have worked in construction, and what is what is Todd's job as the superintendent? He's his job is to give each contractor the work they're supposed to do, and then make sure that it's being built according to the plans that he's been tasked with having it built. That is the work of God. The, the plumber, it's not their building, whatever project Todd's overseeing right now. It's not the plumber's idea. He doesn't do, he does what the superintendent wants. We're not the superintendent, God is. It's his building, and we're just laborers together with God. Yes, you might be the plumber, and, and I, you might be the electrician, Steve, and, and you might be the, the framer, and you might be the sheetrocker, and you might be the painter, and you might be the finished carpenter. We all have different roles within the body of Christ, but we are not competitors. We are co-laborers. Within the church, we're co-laborers. It ought not be, well, why does that one get to do that, and why did they ask that one to do that, and why don't I ever get that? It ought not be that way. You do what God's allowed you to do, and rejoice when God allows someone else to do something else. And with other churches, it ought not be, let me find out what's wrong with them, and let me watch that social media so I can see what they did that we do a little differently so that we can post that and criticize them. We are co-laborers, not competitors. Focus on your own work. You can read the rest of it in chapter 3. Focus on your own work, not the work of other good brothers. He says it over and over again. You're going to give an account. He said if it's wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone, he said every man will give an account for his work. You're not going to give an account for my work, and, and I'll give an account for my leadership. You're not going to give an account for what another brother does. You're going to give an account for what you do, and I'm not going to give an account for what another church does. There's a good friend of mine pastoring a church tonight in Santa Ana, Bethel Baptist Church, Adam Champsidine, we were in college roommates together. I'm not going to give an account for what Adam Champsidine does at Bethel Baptist Church. So do you know how many times in the three years he's been there that I've tuned into a service to figure out what he's doing differently than me so that I can criticize it? Not a single time. Why? Because it's not my job. I'm going to give an account for my work. And that's what Paul tells them here. Every man will give an account. God will deal with each man individually. Well, it's my job to fix the church. And I'm thankful. I don't believe we have anybody like that in our church right now, but I've seen it in church work across the country in my 30 plus years of being a Christian. Most of the time, if you think it's your job to fix the church, it probably isn't. And you're probably not going about it, even if it were the biblical way to do it. Most of the time, somebody with that spirit is not like this. They're spiritually mature, and they're not handling it correctly. Look where Paul started. I want you to skip back to chapter one. I'm almost done. Chapter one. Chapter one. Look where Paul started this letter, right after his greeting, right after his opening greetings. I want you to see where he started. Chapter 1, verse number 10, right from the get-go, <laughs> he's dealing with the carnality, with the immaturity of this church. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse number 10, now I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no what, church? There be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. By the way, that is impossible, that is impossible to do in our own strength. It is only the gospel of Christ that can get hundreds of people to speak the same mind. I don't know about you, our family can't even figure out where we want to go to eat with seven of us, now six of us, even when it's two of us. Where do you want to go to? I don't know. Let's, uh, that doesn't sound good. What about that? Well, uh, uh. You, you decide. No, I don't want to decide. And so the other person decides, no, I don't want that. Well, you told me to decide. That's two or three or four people. There's no way for us all to be of the same mind unless we understand it's not our mind, it's His. 
It's not our work, it's His. It's not our truth, it's His. It's not our preferences, it's His principles. It's not what we want. Somebody said, you've probably seen the meme, I've seen it a few times. Somebody said after church, they came up and said, I didn't like the worship today. And this didn't happen at our church, but I've seen it on social media. And the person responded, well, that's good because it wasn't you we were worshiping. How are we all going to be of the same mind? It's got to be the Spirit of Christ that brings us together. Look at verse number 11. Chapter 1, for it be declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, Chloe tattled on them, that there are contentions among you. Now, there's nothing that will destroy a church faster than a contentious, critical, caustic spirit. Now, this I say that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, and I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now they had four teams. <laughs> one was Paul's, one was Apollos, one was Cephas, one of Christ. And here's what Paul says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I baptized in my own name, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. I don't remember baptizing anybody else. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. What is he saying? He's telling them here, number two, what's the prescription? Get your eyes back on Christ. What's the prescription? Get your eyes back on Christ. Stop the discord and the gossip and the caustic spirit and the critical spirit. And and if you're following some people on social media just so you can criticize that church or that pastor that's a little more traditional than you're comfortable with or is a little more progressive than you're comfortable with, unfollow those accounts. It's not the spirit of Christ. Get your eyes back on Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? There's this group, this church, Christ loves more in this one because they're bigger or they're smaller or they're more country or they're more city or they've got whatever. Is Christ divided? Absolutely not. What's this prescription? The prescription is, remember, we're co-laborers, not competitors. The prescription is... Get your eyes back on Christ. When your focus is on your relationship with Christ and the need of the gospel in the world, you'll have far less time to be worried about and fighting over what other Christians or other churches are or aren't doing. You know who I notice almost very rarely struggles with these dumb fights that we have in American Christianity? You know who I notice very often has a much more biblical perspective on all of this? Missionaries. You know why? Because they understand the, the, the scarcity of the gospel in the country where they're laboring. And they don't have time to fight over somebody that sings out of a different hymnal than they do. Because there's 98% of the people in their city have never heard the name of Jesus. They don't have time to fight. Did you have a glass pulpit or a wood pulpit or a plastic pulpit or a ceramic pulpit? Did you put the words on the screen or you didn't? Did you sing a song that was written before 1900 or after? You know what I noticed? I'm not saying all missionaries, but the ones I've been around, they they might have opinions and they might have preferences on all of that, but they don't make that their priority because the gospel is their priority. And would to God the American church would get back to where the gospel was our priority. I came, Christ is not divided, it's not about me baptizing, it's about me preaching the gospel. Number three. Number three, what did Paul tell them? What's the prescription? Be gracious when you differ. You will differ with other good believers. I differ with with people on our pastoral staff on some of this stuff. People that we work together every day of the week, we have differences of opinions on some of the things that believers fight about. Not doctrinal things, not core Bible doctrines, but preferential opinion-based things. And what did Paul say? Skip over to chapter 8. Chapter 8. I want you to see it. What did Paul tell the church at Corinth in chapter 8? I really am almost done. I've got this, and we'll read these verses, and then one more thought. Chapter 8, verse number 1, now it's touching things offered unto idols. We know know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, and charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating, be careful you don't get lifted up in pride. Well, I've got knowledge that believer doesn't have. I know that it's okay to eat meat offered to idols, or I know that it's wrong to eat meat offered to idols. Guess what Paul told them? It's, is it right or wrong to eat meat offered to idols? And you can find it in Romans 14 and here. He said, yes. It's a personal matter of conscience and preference. It's not a biblical matter of doctrine and church practice. 
Well, I, don't, he said, don't get puffed up. Well, I, I've got all knowledge here. God's called me in my blog. I'm going to show you all the reasons why so-and-so is wrong. Be careful about that, he says. And notice what he says, verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. It has no power. There is none other God but one. We know that, that meat put before that idol, that idol is it's just a statue. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be made gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Every believer isn't that spiritually mature. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Romans 14 calls them the weaker brother. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Well, I have liberty to eat meat. I'm a stronger Christian. I'm a better Christian. I don't have liberty. I'm a stronger Christian. I have more rules than so-and-so. He said neither. It's not, that's not the case. This is a matter of personal preference, conscience. It might have to do with your upbringing. If you, brought, if you brought, got brought up offering meat to idols, even though it's not wrong to eat the meat because the idol is just a little statue, your conscience might not allow you to do it because of your upbringing. And that's okay. Good people can differ on some things. Notice what he says in verse number 9, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge that it meet in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make thy brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brothers to offend. You know what Paul's teaching them here? Be gracious to those with whom you differ. Don't go on it. You don't need to start a podcast about why meat offered to idols is okay. If you have liberty there, that may be okay, but there's some times and places where you should limit your liberty for the sake of a weaker brother. Give grace where there's differences of, of liberty. And again, this doesn't mean everything's up for grabs. The Bible's really clear on a lot of stuff. But there are some areas of personal practice and tradition and upbringing and church practice and church flavors throughout generations. And did you know that churches in Hawaii, I've been to churches in Hawaii, their song service sounded differently than our church sounded today. And there are churches in the deep south that sounded very different than the church in Hawaii sounded and churches in the Philippines that sounded different than the church in the deep south. And, and it's not a right or a wrong. It's cultural. It's regional. It's generational. Good people can have different areas of liberty and conscience. What might be no problem for one good Christian may be a stumbling block for another Christian. So what should we do in those cases? Be gracious. Give room for differences. Don't do something to intentionally offend another. And don't trip up another believer knowingly. And then lastly, what's the prescription to our spiritual immaturity we need to grow up? Rejoice when God uses people who are different than you. What do we do? We criticize when God uses somebody differently than us, don't we? We have to figure out why there's something wrong with them if they're getting used more than we are. They had a bigger Easter Sunday. Oh, they must have compromised somewhere. They had more baptisms today. Oh, something wrong there. Let me find it out and point it out. Last place we'll turn, Philippians. You've listened well. Philippians chapter number one. Powerful passage. Philippians chapter number one. What's the prescription? Rejoice when God uses people who are different than you. Philippians chapter number one, look at verse number 12. Paul again writing to the church of Philippi, a different church, but teaching the same fruit of spiritual maturity. He said, but I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherness of the gospel. What was he talking about? He's talking about being in prison. I've suffered for the gospel's sake. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. I'm actually able to reach a lot of people I couldn't have reached before because I'm in prison and in all other places. And look at this, verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So because I've suffered, others now have the boldness to, to preach. But then what, notice what he says in verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ also of what, church? Of what? 
envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love. He's doing it the right reasons and the right ways, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. he's He's not questioning my motives. What then? Here it is. Would you read verse 18 aloud? Last verse we'll read aloud together. Ready? Begin. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. What did Paul say? There's some guys that think ill of me, that they're not right, what they think about me. They're wrong, what they've said about me, that that their ministry is all about hurting me. And there are others that they believe the best about me, and, and my, my, my being in prison has emboldened them to preach more. There are some that preach out of envy and strife, and there are some that preach out of goodwill and love. There are some guys doing it the right way, in a way that's more pleasing to Christ, and there are some guys that are doing it from a self, self-righteous way. And you know what Paul said? If the gospel is preached, I rejoice, yea, I will rejoice. Is that your spirit? Let me come to church and find the one thing I want to disagree with. Let me come to church to criticize the one person that does something I don't like. Let me go on Facebook to find the one thing about that believer that I can tear down and I can send a text message to a family member. Did you see so-and-so and such-and-such? That wasn't the spirit of Christ and that wasn't the spirit of Paul. What did Paul say? Some of them preach it the wrong way, with the wrong spirit, from the wrong heart. But if the word of Christ is getting out there, I rejoice the gospel's preached, and I will rejoice. What did Paul understand that we need to understand? God's blessing is not a limited commodity. Just because God pours his blessing on a Christian or a pastor or a church or a family that is somewhat different than you doesn't mean he has less blessing to pour out on you. Stop living with a scarcity mindset. God is abundant in mercy and abundant in blessing and abundant in grace, and, and he can use a church that, that, that looks and sounds and feels different than us and has a different looking building and meets in a school building and baptizes in a swimming pool and meets in a warehouse and, and, and has uh, bright walls and has dark walls and has colored lights and doesn't have colored lights and has candle lights. God can use it all. Rejoice if the gospel is preached. And by the way, if you don't have liberty to attend a church like that, that's okay. Don't attend a church like that. Go to a church that, that you can fully get behind and support and love, but your job is not to tear that brother. If you don't want to go to a church where all they have is a pipe organ and, and nothing else, and, or I know some churches they sing only a cappella, and that's all, and that's all, and you don't want to go to a church, don't go, but you don't need to criticize them. Rejoice that God uses people who are different than you. What did Paul say? If the true gospel of Christ is being preached, I rejoice. But they do things differently than you do, Paul. If the true gospel of Christ is being preached, I rejoice. But that guy was talking badly about you, Paul. But if the true gospel of Christ is being preached, I rejoice. But they don't have the right spirit, Paul, when they, in the way that they preach. They preach of envy and of strife. If the true gospel of Christ is being preached, I rejoice. But they're doing it for the wrong reasons, Paul, with the wrong motives, Paul. If the true gospel of Christ is being preached. I rejoice. Well, that guy isn't even sincere, Paul. Some don't do it of sincerity. If the true gospel of Christ is being preached, I rejoice. I rejoice that God can use people who are different than me, that do things differently than I do, but they preach the same gospel and the same Christ as Paul did. That is not compromise. That is not, that is not somehow being, being a yellow-bellied, spineless preacher. That is spiritual maturity. That is a biblical mindset. I'm going to rejoice that God can use people who do things differently than I do. Oh, there is such a thing as compromise, but we have have fixed the term liberal for all the wrong reasons. A theological liberal is one who denies the blood of Christ, who denies the deity of Christ, who denies the bodily resurrection, who denies the vicarious suffering of Jesus Christ, who denies the fact that God sent His only begotten Son, who denies the inspiration of the Word of God. That is a theological liberal. A theological liberal isn't somebody that sings out of a hymnal that you don't sing out of. So let's have the spirit of Christ. God has been teaching me this for years, probably a good decade now. There are still times, so I'm not going to say I have complete 
spiritual maturity in this area, but there was a time a decade ago where I had a much more competitive, caustic, critical spirit toward believers who did things differently than I did or, or, or just had different liberty or different preferences or different flavors or tastes or whatever you want to say about some certain things than I did. And it was actually Romans 14 and some godly older pastors, one of them being Dwight Tomlinson, that helped me to see a more Christ-like spirit, what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Church family, what was he telling the church at Corinth? We need to grow up. Stop the carnality, the strife, the envying. Stop the backbiting and the discord. Stop the criticism online and the subtweets, the underhanded preaching against good men and women of God. And let's follow Paul's advice to the Christians at Corinth and, and Philippi. Long before he dealt with their sexual immorality, he dealt with their jealousy and their discord and their contentions and their unnecessary divisions. So how is your spiritual maturity and love toward that believer that does things differently than you would? Toward that church and pastor that looks different than yours does? I'm not talking about ones that deny there are churches we ought to have no, nothing to do with. There are preachers that are preaching a false gospel that we should not give the time of day to. We shouldn't read their books. We shouldn't listen to their podcasts. I'm not talking about doctrinal compromise. I'm talking about I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. No, we're all of Christ. They like Paul, you like Apollos. They like the Rams, you're godly, so you like the Niners. We're all, we have differences, but here's the answer. Be careful because that spiritual immaturity will give you a misguided focus. You'll misunderstand what's really important and you'll unnecessarily separate from good people. The prescription is to get your eyes back on Christ, off of men. Remember we're co-laborers, not competitors. Be gracious in the areas where you differ and rejoice when God uses people who are different than you. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.